And so we might say this is an experience of the void. You're listening to the Digital Void Podcast, where we work to make sense of the borderlands of digital media, culture, politics, and memes. My name is Josh Chaptonley, and my co-host is memeticist Dr. Jamie Cohen. Today, Jamie and I explore the essential nature of journalism about digital culture, from TikTok hype houses to how Substack incentivizes creators, and how the fourth estate helps level power so that we can all negotiate meaning in public spaces together. Before we begin, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform now. Okay. So let's go back a little bit. A few years ago, and I mean like a decade ago, people weren't really focusing on the internet as a place in which we should be applying critical thinking, critical theory, because the internet in the early 20 teens was still in its evolution state and the internet being social media at that point. I don't think in 2010, we were yet at the point where the entire World Wide Web was four websites. No, (laughs) (laughs) no, Geocity still had a good level of traffic in 2010. Right. I think people knew that there was other websites. People knew where to go. Reddit is still a formidable site, but I think people knew that they didn't have to just go to one site. And what I mean by the internet is four websites. I'm I'm taking that a bit from Brian Broderick. It's kind of like when you go on Instagram, you see those screenshots from uh, Twitter. When you're on Twitter, you see TikTok and so on and so forth. They're basically just recursive sites. And that's the way that the internet is in 2020, which is somewhat disheartening because all of the web is still out there and there's just not a lot of places to go visit. And we'll talk about that as we go about how that is now broken off into what we've been talking about since the beginning of this project and things that we've raised as fears of the editorial web, which is the the web that is separated for every user, that every person gets a different internet. But I think these things weren't really thought about in 2010 at all. I mean, Facebook at that point was like five years old. Twitter was four years old. The Arab Spring really hasn't even happened yet. And when we talk about how evolution has happened is that the 2010s, the teens, as we talked about with David, Ryan Polgar, we talked about how the internet really expanded laterally, like sideways. It didn't expand. There wasn't a lot of innovation new. People just sort of got used to how to use social media platforms. That's where, as you and I know from Sarah Fryer, we know that that's where the influencers come from. That's where people have become, basically, they, they learned how to use the platform so well, they commodified themselves. So from Casey Nestat to the grifters in the far right, everybody kind of figured it out. When Trump became president, we really kind of concretized how the internet had operated. And that's where like basically factions appeared. And so the factions that everybody talks about is like Twitter is the home for like journalists. And that's where the news is made. So Trump knew how to leverage talk directly to the journalists so you could create news cycles. Facebook was kind of the place where groups were prioritized. And that's where like moms and families were. And again, back to Trump, Trump would talk specifically differently to them. So it was amplified. So Facebook became a huge platform for that. Newer pla- newer sites like TikTok and Instagram stories and vertical video spaces that you do a lot of research on uh, became prioritized because they were more, quote, authentic, because they, they allowed people to see their faces, facial expressions, and present themselves. So we kind of got used to it. We just knew how those things work. But as with any technologies and any social media, they're not going to last forever. They're not. And I, I'm not just talking about like Vine, which was a rest in peace, the most beautiful site <laughs> ever. I'm talking more about like what happens when these things get stale. I think arguably Facebook is pretty stale at this point. I I don't know how you do you use it? Are you still a Facebook person? I strictly use it for business purposes. I don't use Facebook. I last posted on Facebook a year ago, but I agree with the fact that Facebook is stale. But at the same point, I'm 
always wary of calling it stale because I remember specifically in 2015 when Facebook reached a plateau in user growth and decided to reinvent journalism on its own platform by incentivizing publishers to publish uh, natively through Facebook. Mm, And I'm always curious as to how Facebook will continue to adapt or swallow other businesses to integrate into its own business model. And so I look at what it's doing with WhatsApp and how it's changing its data privacy and how it's changing Instagram to create more community-oriented spaces. And I feel like Facebook isn't quite done yet. Okay, that's fair. I think that's true too anyway, because you're right. It's a it's so it's worth so many tens of billions of dollars at this point that it will evolve. I just feel like it's more along the lines of something that's heavy and it's harder to evolve. And that's why Zuckerberg's consistently copying other platforms rather than innovating on them. And I think that's not that is not to say that Zuckerberg is not innovating. I think maybe it's just there's sort of a scale limit to what social media can be. And so when social social media works, innovation itself is too experimental. So you kind of see what sticks and what doesn't. And so just recently, a new form of social media has kind of evolved from these things, which Zuckerberg, of course, has copied. And so like you, you know, like the vertical video was a big step stories. Uh, what are they called on Twitter? Fleets? Um, yeah, fleets. Fleets. And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, Facebook stories. Uh, and basically the genre of stories is vertical video storytelling. And that became a, a concept and a driver. I agree too. what you said about Facebook is that Facebook kind of does decide on how information is being converted. So when they did decide to pilot news and publishing without somehow interacting with Section 230, they did sort of like shift the industry itself. They did. I get it. But I think the larger overall trends are something that can't be anticipated until they happen. And the most recent trend, of course, is audio. Audio social media like Clubhouse, which is the one I want to talk about is an offshoot of the growth of podcasting. Uh, So here we are. Uh, We're a little over a year into our project, but you've been working on podcasts for quite some time longer than that. And that is something that I think the pandemic has increased where we've, because we've been inside, we have the ability to kind of experience multiple senses. So it's not just an eye-based social media, which is like Twitter feeds, which a lot of reading, Facebook, sound and video. And now we have like the portable internet, which is audio. And so the portable internet is kind of like you can put it in your pocket, you can listen to it, you can stream it. And it's a multitasking internet too. Like you could be doing other things while you're doing it. Well, if you're reading Twitter feeds, you can't really cook at the same time. So I think that's, that's important. But it's also about early adopters. Sometimes and occasionally, a lot of innovation occurs through need or room to grow elsewhere than places they felt users may feel excluded from. Social media during the Trump era and post-Trump, post-insurrection, trust and safety became a primary goal as a result. Of course, we know now that they could have done this much earlier. I think this was said on Shitpost podcast, which is that we are now very aware of how much control uh, social media has over the way that the United States democracy actually operates. Because with the control to have removed Trump and QAnon and anti-vax and anti-Holocaust information, that is something that could have been done far earlier. But knowing now that they didn't take that action, it's kind of damning in retrospect. Trust and safety becomes the name for what the platforms are trying to maintain. It's like a human resources department and trying to protect the company 
and view humans as resources. Trust and safety in a post-insurrection world and social media platforms emphasis on it is trying to get the government to place trust and in safety in the platforms themselves. I think so. I think it's in, in that sense, what you're saying is reactionary, but I, I'd like to give trust and safety a little more credit. I think trust and safety does their best to do content moderation and create policy, but I do think it does butt up against its formal profit model. And so its formal profit model requires them to host certain content for the attention economy. And as many, many, many people aside from us have paid attention to, the last four years, a lot of these platforms have changed their profit model around one human being. It was really around Trump and they they shifted it that whole way. So during that era, all of it was like siphoned into it. And I, I've made this argument elsewhere, but arguably for four years, all media was state media because if everything was based around Trump and the reaction to Trump, all we were doing was listening to state media, the government directed media, although we weren't interpreting that way because a lot of people didn't. There's this gray area in which Trump fits. Is he an entertainer? Is he a politician? Is he a a grifter? Is he a bombastic reactionary? It doesn't matter because what matters is how the platforms amplified his speech and then to disastrous results on January 6th. So trust and safety did their best during all of this time. I have a great appreciation for trust and safety, but I do see where that is like their, their, their knife is a bit dull because they could only do so much because the upper echelon of some of these companies dictate the control of what is said and what isn't, regardless of the fact if they have a finger or a pulse on it. And this excludes Facebook. Zuckerberg has his finger on everything in that company. So that that is very much a Facebook oriented issue. Whereas a lot of the other platforms, their trust and safety teams do a lot of work to make sure that the, the audience and the people feel safe and that the platform itself is a region for conversation, which is what social media is. Social media is it's media that's been able to be a communication device at the exact same time. So you're sharing all types of media that are acting as communication. But I think post-Trump, post-insurrection, now we're seeing a shift in reporting too, or seeing in ways we cover it. And this includes what we're doing right now, how we're covering these topics. The conversation itself has now shifted more critically, which can be good. Now looking critically at anything saves and preserves democracy. If we're going to be interested in a preservation of democracy, which I know democracy in the United States is quite broken, but the effort to replace that democracy is not going to be even-handed and will hurt the most vulnerable first. So it's it's in our best interest and most humanistic interest to preserve democracy. And the way to do that is to make sure that we are aware of how the systems operate so that people feel safe outside of the systems that are doing this. And the way we do this is through the fourth estate, journalists, uh, reporters, information. When you have power, you have to interrogate power. You have to. And if you don't, the power itself becomes the structure. And that, that's really important for journalists to do this. So now I just want to say, when I first started doing the new media major, and when we first started doing like internet studies back in the early 2010s, no one was really covering it. You had really great sites with that were really specific to it. You had like entire sites that were dedicated to the internet beat. Uh, Ars Technica, Quartz was part of it. Uh, Tube Filter, which was extremely centric on web video and video web series. So there were sites that were there, but there weren't, those beats were like, you get hired at Polygon and you were going to report on the internet or you're going to report on media. But there weren't mainstream, and I mean like big outlets that had internet beat reporters. When we started seeing like NBC News bring on Ben Collins and Brandy Zdrozny, it was like such a breath of fresh air because they started reporting on the internet. And that reporting on the internet to the public is important because I think at that first point, we started realizing what we've talked to 
to Nathan and Legacy about is that we're the same online as we are in real life. Online just allows us to amplify ourselves and create that character persona and hide behind the glass. But why were we not reporting on it previously? Just because we created different media on the internet doesn't mean we shouldn't be talking about it to the public. And I think that was a bit of disservice in the early 2010s that we were just simply saying, well, it's a sandbox. It's a place where people go to make fun things and cats on skateboards. And when I put together the first uh, edition of producing new and digital media, that was kind of like the thought. Here you are in real life. How do you leverage yourself in digital space? And that's cool. That's great. But it was like light touches, you know, it was kind of like, how do we make this for the general public? And finally, during the Trump era, many more reporters are being hired by major publications to report on internet culture. And that was a big shift, I think, for the way that we were able to interrogate what is go- what's happening that isn't just user information. So this brings us to the present. Taylor Lorenz is an internet culture reporter. She was working for The Atlantic and she was doing really phenomenal research on subcultures or sub-information online. And I think it was really important for us to start reading about it. One of my favorite articles and something that you and I are going to be talking about on a future episode is an article she wrote for The Atlantic called Hate Finds a New Home on Instagram. And to be honest, it changed my life because I had been following some of these sites that we're going to be talking about with some of these far right-wing grifters for quite some time. And I was always thinking, oh my gosh, this just happens. Like This is happening without anybody interfering with it. Nobody knows what's going on. These insular communities are hosting very dangerous rhetoric, and they're allowed to do so because they see themselves, as Becca Lewis would write, as alternative media outlets. And that was their plan. So people like Tim Poole reveled in being alternative media, which they are. YouTube, television, however you want to call it, is alternative media. It's not the typical mainstream. But if you report on it solely as distinctly different rather than extensions of, it creates the isolation that says, okay, well, it's not harming everybody, so we don't have to focus on it. When now we know that they are scalable. And as Becca Lewis's phenomenal research has shown that they are influencer networks. For a while, pre these beats, pre pre these internet beats, people would say the algorithm is doing this. And the algorithm had a fair amount of say in it, but the algorithm only works if these people were able to leverage their personalities and influence onto others, creating these networks of rabbit holes, these networks of communities that would eventually energize and activate. Being unable to see them in our public spaces means they were able to operate in in the dark. So I think you and I agree, reporting, journalism is extremely important, right? From your perspective, like, why do you like journalism? (laughs) I, I think you touch on it. I think that journalism is massively important because it is the fourth estate. But more importantly, it allows us to be critical and investigate structures of power. And it allows us to be able to create meaning in public spaces together. Well, I think what you said is important. Sense-making, meaning-making. Journalism does that. If you are a person and you don't understand how the government operates and you try to read a bill, <laughs> you are, you, and I know that you, you're, you've probably read bills and you've probably looked at them and you could probably understand it, but you had to be functionally somewhat literate of how politics operates for you to say, oh, okay, I understand what's in this bill. Same goes with finances. Even for something as tiny as the Green New Deal, which is, I feel, believe like 14 or 15 pages. You have to be incredibly politically literate to be able to dissect each part. Right. So a journalist's role historically is to do that interpretation, is to uh, confront power. And, and when they do that, they translate that information to the public and the public then gains some sort of knowledge as to how the systems are actually operating. And from that operational standpoint, at least attempts to level out the playing field. So all this being said, this long drawn out introduction into this leads to a moment that occurred just recently. Taylor Lorenz started writing about the newest app 
Clubhouse and some of the shortcomings of not just how the app is operating, but those who occupy its space. Clubhouse benefit from early adopters. And I would say even people who are joining Clubhouse now are still technically early adopters. The app is just over a year old. When people joined it, they joined it in several factions that were kind of like offshoots of Twitter factions. And one of the earliest offshoots were the VC Twitter the space where people were going to basically speak about how social media operates from the venture side. What many people may know and many people may not know is that a lot of innovation has to be supported by Silicon Valley. And I don't mean like tech, I mean like the people. It's a, it's, a, it's a fairly insular club. And that insular club makes a lot of decisions on how apps are developed, what becomes of those. And that insular community is needs criticism because what happens is if you don't criticize them or you don't interrogate them, the insular community reinvents the wheel over and over again. We saw this when they invented buses, the bodega, over and over again. It's just the same thing that's already existed, but now as an app. And so that type of recursive behavior is the same thing. It's a microcosm of how we kind of like just sort of exist, which is why every meme is the same meme. But inside of these spaces, a lot of these very powerful VCs have spent the last two, even three decades enriching themselves off of this. And I don't mean enriching themselves in a very small way. I mean, people that have enriched themselves to the point of becoming blind to the idea that money exists. They, they are so wealthy from investing in apps and getting points in the back end that they solely exist outside of our space and exist in, in the venture space. And that's how we end up with $69 million NFTs. But yes, We've, I mean, that's a, that's a bit of a tangent there. But yeah, I mean, how do you get that much literal liquid to spend on an NFT, which is a completely different conversation. But that means obviously you have that extra money around knowing full well that you're reinvesting. And that reinvestment, again, perpetuates the recursive behavior. When we critique power, it doesn't just simply inform people about what power is, but it attempts or negotiates with how people make sure that they're not taken over and they don't know it. So if you're not unaware of how power exists and you're unaware of how systems operate, it slowly envelopes you. So Taylor's work had started questioning people's attitudes inside these spaces because Clubhouse is a non-archivable space that's voice-based where and privatized. So you can make private rooms so you can go in there. And inside of them, they can become very critical of things they don't agree with. Oftentimes, as we'll talk about in future episodes here, they've entered Clubhouse because they've been they felt excluded from previous social media sites. And so in that exclusion, they're, they've adopted this victimization of now we're free. And in that in that exclusion, they want to feel as if they could speak without being reported on. They, they could speak without having the oversight. Reporters to a lot of uh, people who have felt excluded from social media sites, and I'm talking about people who are mainstays in literally the darkest spots in the internet, from the darker web to 4chan to anything, always feel as if they want to be away from anybody telling on them. They don't want eyes on them. In many cases, that's fair. I, I think that's absolutely fair. I think we have the right to have some sort of private spaces, some safe spaces online. But I think that shifts when the rhetoric becomes dangerous. And I don't mean dangerous in the terms of like what the instruction was, but I mean dangerous in the way of like a mind virus, in the way that somebody could say something that instigates or perpetuates misogyny, racism, or or other types of damaging or ableist material that becomes jokeified or laughable or something where people don't take it seriously any longer because now they feel safe that they're not going to be critiqued on that. And so Taylor was started to report on some of these social media sites. 
and started reporting on some of the things that are being said in quote unquote private, which it is not. It is not private. It is a social media app. These are public spaces that are sign upable. And just because you need an invite to get into the app doesn't make it private. So after reporting on several of the people that were using the app, uh, Tucker Carlson decided to dedicate some time literally dedicate some time to talking about Taylor Lorenz, saying her name well over a dozen times. This way, it becomes an earworm or a boogeyman to many of the people that feel as if they're being targeted. But here's where that backfires, because it isn't just about empowering the people that felt targeted, not targeted, but felt that way. It isn't just empowering them. What it does is actually empowers the stands, if, if, if that's the correct term for it. It's, it. As you and I have talked about on previous uh, episodes about it, is everything wrestling. Some of the people that are in these clubhouse rooms have become demigods to some of these people. I'm not talking about just Elon Musk. I'm talking about just people who have money have become demigods to some of these fans. And so I'm just going to read off the New York Times response to Tucker Carlson. In a now familiar move, Tucker Carlson opened his show last night by attacking a journalist. It was calculated and a cruel tactic, which he regularly deploys to unleash a wave of harassment and vitriol at his intended target. Taylor Lorenz is a talented New York Times journalist doing timely and essential reporting. Journalists should be able to do their jobs without facing harassment. And this is important, harassment, because the way that this plays out is that gray space, the metatextual space. It would, be, it would not seem on its face to be harassment, but it results in harassment. It results in dangerous and reactionary stances that attack and dox Taylor Lorenz. And I mean dox in the in the sincere sense. I, I don't mean in the sense of like, we know her name. I mean like her address and her family and everything. I mean, they, getting that information is dangerous to her as a human, as a being. And she's doing her job as a reporter, which is bringing truth to power. And one of the responses to this got me. The response was from this character. I'm not going to say his name. And it just said, reporting on TikTok and Clubhouse is essential? Question mark? With 1,800 likes. And I, I, I grew incensed. <laughs> because my career has always been interrogating and critically analyzing media. That's what it's been. Even when I worked in television, I left reality TV because I couldn't really handle the lack of critical approaches to it. And it drove me nuts. I had to leave. So I, I went into grad school and started critically studying critical media studies. You know, I wanted to find out what that means. And when I say critical media studies, it's, it includes everything that media is. That's how we communicate via media and in the widest sense possible, media being plural. So is it essential? Yes, it's essential. It's absolutely essential for Taylor to report on the hype houses of TikTok and the people who occupy Clubhouse. It's essential because if you don't, these things become normalized. And when they become normalized, you simply accept them as that is how it's supposed to be. And when that becomes how it's supposed to be, it becomes very, very concerning for how we as a public operate our next steps, how we operate our future. Because if you normalize people speaking ill and harassing people inside of Clubhouse and talking about how they should only prioritize their version of reality, then that's how things are. That's what happens. It just becomes that way. If you're unaware of how they're structuring the future of app design and app development, they deploy their apps, not your apps, their apps. If the hype houses become exploitative of young people and start taking people's money and start telling people how they operate and the, the agents and the companies start telling people that's what it is, then all of what Black Mirror is as a satire just becomes as it is. And we know that it's a satire of the present, but it's only a satire of the present because journalists are able to identify this as something that we shouldn't be. And so bringing truth to power and reporting on TikTok and Clubhouse is essential because if you don't do that, you simply ask that question. 
And I, and I think there are some good faith people that responded to that person and said, yeah, it, it is essential. But I think most of it was in bad faith. People who are using that in the way that Dale Barron would say it is in trolling senses only. There's no real substance to the response. There's no real care to the answer. What they care about is having their the volume of answers. And to me, I think it's really important to understand that reporting is the way that we stay free. It's the only way that we can not just preserve democracy, but keep our freedoms. Our freedoms, the things that come with the rights of being US citizens and, and many people in the world, Freedom comes from the knowledge that we're not being taken over, that we're not being controlled, that we're not being, our future isn't being directed by some other platform. What I think most people don't realize is when they get really close to something, when they get really into something, their fandom or standom becomes so overwhelmingly positive in their world that it's really hard for them to see that it's an outside to that. And I, I, that worries me because I know this escalated all the way up to Tucker Carlson and Tucker Carlson spreads anti-vax material, uh, spreads scaremongering tactics is really just in many ways boomer bait. But because Tucker is fulfilling the way that Trump had negotiated media timelines, it's the same way. In theory, we shouldn't be reporting on Tucker Carlson. <laughs> That's the stuff, right? I mean, we should just leave, if you leave him out, you could diffuse it. But by interacting with him, it just continues the fuel. And it continues the fuel. But interestingly enough, when you speak about how he releases or how he dedicates time on his show to disinformation, misinformation campaigns about everything from vaccines to targeted harassment of journalists, to me, that's a form of something that is becoming more and more common in the po digital political space, and that is cause-based advocacy. So while on the left, Many folks, uh, many activists will go from supporting Green New Deal candidates from Ed Markey to others. Others will, at, based on the ideal of the Green New Deal itself, there is another side to this, which is how do you bait people who are so willing to be outraged or to not just spread misinformation, but are vulnerable to conspiracy because there's a lack of meaning making or sense making that is inherent in their own life and has been conditioned to look for the next boogeyman. And in a post-Trump world, that cause-based advocacy is intended to be targeted at the very systems of oppression and inequality that create horrible material conditions for us, but actually end up targeting those that are trying to create the critical conversation itself. Oh, wow. Yeah, you're right. So you, you brought up the last point, I think, here is, is vulnerability. How are people attracted to misinformation? How are people attracted to conspiracy? It comes from two things that people have identified scientifically and through studies is that it comes down to doubt. Uh, people doubt structures that they may not be on their side. And then the inherent fear that follows that. Uh, inherent fear is the idea that there's no one on your side. And so when that happens, the, the lack of power becomes a the ability to seek power elsewhere. And a lot of these places fulfill that through like what you said, they become susceptible to bad actors who are who know this already. It is without a doubt, Tucker and his writers are fully aware of their audience. They know exactly how to exploit these doubts and their fears to fulfill that space of power. If we did not have the fourth estate, I don't think you and I would be having this conversation. <laughs> I don't think you and I would have the power to make media. I think we would have to follow somebody else's way of 
creating whatever they told us to make. And I don't mean this in a very hyperbolic way or exaggerated. I just mean we maintain a semblance of control because we are informed. And that's the most important thing that we have to keep. And it is essential to continue reporting. And I am I can't express to you more than what I'm saying here, how happy I am to know that people are on the internet beat. It's it's a decade. At the beginning, it was this, this constant yelling into the void, uh, so to speak, of please, 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 please cover this material. Please focus on this. Please see that, yes, it's funny that Zach Galifianakis has between two forums, but please keep in mind that he is a famous person and he is occupying the same space as amateurs. And amateurs don't see that as, as Hollywood becoming or owning independent structures. They see that as them becoming lifted up to Hollywood. And that is not the right way of seeing it. There's power and non-power and somebody has to inform the public of this. I'm not saying it was too late for internet-based reporters to get there, but I think it's amazing that they're there now. And we certainly need more and we need to continue these conversations because we're currently in the middle of the beginnings of a conversation around the very platform that we started this conversation about, and that's Substack. And I think it's important to recognize that being critical of a platform is not saying that a platform shouldn't exist, but rather beginning a conversation about how it can be improved to be a more healthy ecosystem for folks to create content and to create true writing and true journalism. But unfortunately, the environment of Substack itself has not been conducive to true journalism. You remove editors, you remove newsrooms. And in a way, that's a result of years of broken advertising system and a declining journalism industry in general. But in order for Substack, which, as you mentioned, is created based on venture capital by those who have so much wealth that they don't know what to do with money but expect returns on that money, you need voices of authority and in particular, voices of authority whose content will spread and promote the platform. And that brings us to the monetization of the platform itself. The reason that it's important to be critical of Substack in this particular moment is because of its cash advances to a small number of writers. Uh, Substack CEO Hamish McKenzie on March 13th publishes a blog post, Why We Pay Writers on Substack. And I think it's important to keep Hamish's words in mind as we move forward. In it, he writes, as a Silicon Valley startup, we were hyper aware of the skepticism that might come our way with starting Substack. We needed to show that the Substack model was trustworthy and reliable. We did this in part by making our success dependent on writer's success. Substack is free for anyone to use, and we make money only when they do by taking a 10% cut of subscription revenue. Writers retain total independence with complete ownership of their mailing lists, intellectual property, and content. He continues, we started experimenting with advances, paying a small number of writers sums ranging from $10,000 to $30,000 to cover them for a few months as they got established on Substack. They paid back the money over time through a revenue sharing agreement. We also introduced a fellowship program where over two cohorts, we offered writers coaching, business advice, and more cash advances. The advances worked well. They helped writers start high quality and profitable publications beloved by their readers. And they gave us confidence that we could invest even more deeply in writers in a way that would help both them and us. But the advances also had limitations. On a per deal basis, we could never really do better than break even. A Substack advance was effectively an interest-free loan that would never be paid back if a publication failed. 
At the same time, while the writer would have a good cash cushion for the first few months, they had to get through the payback period before their revenue really started flowing. So we came up with a new structure that allowed us to absorb more risk on the writer's behalf, ensuring they'd get paid for a year of work no matter how their publication performed. We came to call this program Substack Pro. And here's where it gets insidious. With Substack Pro, we pay a writer an upfront sum to cover their first year on the platform. The idea is the payment can be more attractive to a writer than a salary, so they don't have to stay in a job or take one that's less interesting to them than being independent. In return for that financial security, a pro writer agrees to let Substack keep 85% of the subscription revenue in that first year. After that year, the deal flips so that the writer no longer gets a minimum guarantee, but from then on keeps 90% of the subscription revenue which, if we've made our bet well, will be a larger overall dollar amount. We like the structure because, while some who get these deals are already well off, it gives financially constrained writers the ability to start building a sustainable enterprise. We take most of the risk for them. In return, their work contributes to the quality of the Substack ecosystem and they become long-term customers. It's also important that the economics of these deals work out for Substack. We don't have to make money on everyone, but we certainly shoot for that. If the program were financially unsustainable, doing these deals would do more harm than good since not only would it compromise writers' careers, but we'd also be burning their trust. And that's a little bit long, but in particular, I find it really concerning that on a system meant created as we've been discussing, on creating boogeymen and realizing immediate or at least medium-term profit for Substack, that the types of writers that the platform is attracting and its lack of content moderation or at least content standard will incentivize greater and greater levels of harassment on a platform that structurally is attempting to communicate and market itself to the public as a neutral platform. And this is where journalism becomes doubly important because those that are attempting to disguise as true journalists, and this is not an attack on those that are doing truly critical work on Substack, but rather the platform itself, because there is within the very near future, and it's happening already, the realization that this type of outrage content production is only going to create deeper levels of inflammation and continue to exacerbate existing wounds within digital spaces. What you've touched on is incredibly important because in theory, that entire statement makes sense. But in in reality, I think we're well beyond that making any sort of sense in the world we live now, because that would have made more sense before reaction reactionaries became a profitable guys. And now we're in a place where Substack is well aware of the editorial free environment, which is, I mean, you just call it social media at that point, because it's an editorial free environment. And many reporters that we know are, are very aware of the, uh, the role of an editor in a piece as the public facing person, the last line of defense before a reader gets to the material. So you have an additional set of eyes. A lot of times, it's not to dis discount what we say as something that needs to be editorialized or corrected or truth speaked or censored or so forth. It's not about that. It's about understanding that the public itself has a reason to read your material and to gain from it, to become informed from it. So an editor-free environment is you know, what social media exists as, and we've already seen its outcome. And pre-recent events, you know, that type of environment might have been a creative space, may have been an actual place for experimentation of new journalism. You know, that, that makes sense, right? Like to be able to experiment with journalism or experiment with writing, I think is how we change the environments we live in, change communication. And in many ways, that could be a very positive movement for a wide variety 
of really amazing groups and communities. But now we know who's leveraged that power. Now we know who takes that power. And, and, and there's several bad actors that have migrated to Substack to specifically abuse that power. And so criticism of them makes them upset, even though that's just the world that's been part of our rights. Our rights are to critically analyze this and understand that that's part of it. You don't exist outside of everything. Like to be, it's almost the assumption that Substack is so free, it's in a vacuum and there's an audience still, right? I mean, that's, it's an awareness of an audience. So I don't understand where the misunderstanding of platform experimentation becomes exclusive, critical free experimentation. I'm, I'm unclear of that. And to to circle back on this is to understand that Taylor Lorenz's harassment from Tucker Carlson came from an innocuous post she made on Twitter on International Women's Day about how women who report specifically on this are likely to get harassed by bringing truth to power, which resulted in more harassment. So now we know that the action of harassment is actually part of the entertainment. And I'm calling it that. And I know that puts down a lot of their work, but their entertainment factor is exactly what Substack says, which is that they're hoping that whatever these first adopters of pro are, that it brings in enough subscribers, remember subscribers are long tail, that it sticks around long enough for profit models to increase on this circular reaction, reactionary reactions. And eventually it becomes so recursive that we start reporting on the news that's reporting the news that's reporting the news that's reporting the news until it in of itself becomes meaningless and only harassment. And that type of thing is if we don't take a step back and recognize these structures are facilitating this and are perpetuating this, then we are doomed to consistently invent new products that are just harassment machines. And I don't foresee that being healthy, not just for democracy, but I don't see that healthy for anybody. I think if you want to experiment, I, f- I think Clubhouse and Substack are, I, I still, no matter what, I am supportive of these new ventures and these new projects. I, I think they're neat. They provide enough positives to say that they're, they're worth it. But at the same time, I don't care who you are. I think it's important that if you've gained power, that somebody should be able to tell other people about how you got there. I think it's important that the stories are told from a wider view because we don't exist in a vacuum. We exist with our public. We exist with the readers. We exist with the people around us. And we exist within a power structure that Substack is only part of and Clubhouse is only a piece of. It isn't the whole thing. It's not the whole thing. And we need to be inventive about creating long-term, sustainable humanitarian solutions to the problems that have plagued us for the last 20 years. Because beside how deeply oppressive and problematic they are, it's it's hysterical that people think that building the same thing on top, uh, a new technology on top of the same motives or incentives will ever change anything. So I think this is a call toward creating new solutions to these problems. And I think we have a lot of conversations ahead to get into these solutions as well. 100%. And I, I just want to double down and just support journalists. And I, I I think it's important that our our friends who are reporters and our friends who are not reporters and people who we don't know who are reporters, I think they have to continue doing this work because I think this is important to the way that we negotiate our space in the world. And if we're going to create media, civic media, and also have the ability to rise to power ourselves and the power to influence others, like you said, we should do it in a humanistic way. We should do it with the consideration of other people around us. And we should do it because we're interested in making people more informed. Thank you for joining us on the Digital Void podcast. To learn more about Digital Void and to find show notes of today's episode and all previous conversations, you can visit us on the web at digitalvoid.media. Stay safe, 
stay healthy, and we'll see you next week.